listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending your hour on this just delightful Monday. And it has that feel. It has that feel, finally, like we can turn the corner, that things might be better. And you know what the harbinger of all of that good news was? It was a guy by the name of Kawhi Leonard who was with us again today. And Kawhi, another dominant performance Sunday afternoon. How do you prepare? What is your secret, Kawhi? Kawhi, what is your secret? I'm a fun guy. Thank you. Kawhi Leonard is with us again. What a game by him. But, of course, the big news, and you heard it in the news, it's all baby, baby, baby. Everything's the baby, baby, baby. And I want to pose this question. Why is it we care? Why do we care about some ginger baby in the UK? I don't understand. I mean, the child is the seventh in the line of the throne. The British throne is the eighth great-grandchild of Queen Elizabeth. Weighed in at 7 pounds, 8 ounces. You're saying, Alan, sounds like you care a lot because you know a lot about it. Well, I've been looking into it. And here's the thing, is we care about it because Meghan and Harry are celebrities. And yes, they are royalty. But royalty is interchangeable with celebrity. And that is something that the House of Windsor has done very well recently. It has, of course, had some major stumbles over the last 100 years. And hey, why don't we just call it like it is? Call it truth. Because the fact of the matter is, that's not their last name. No, no, their last name is Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. The Saxe-Coburgs. You may recall that they changed their name to the much more palatable Windsor, in 1917, when having a German-sounding last name did not seem like such a good idea. Anybody listening in Kitchener? Anybody in Kitchener, Ontario? Used to be Berlin? So this kind of thing was going around late in World War I, and people changed their names. So anyway, I would just like to say welcome to uh, baby Sax Coburg. Because that is what your name is. But uh, I, here's here's the thing. I, I want to just quickly go to this. Because here's what Harry said today. And this is, I think, what melted my heart a little bit. I know you're saying, come on, it's a kid. Give me a break. I mean, the world is interested. Let's be a little nicer. But this is, I think, this is what Harry said, and I love this. It's been the most amazing experience I can ever um, possibly imagine. Um, how any woman does what they do is beyond comprehension and he if you've seen that when he says beyond comprehension he he makes the mind-blowing symbol you know the old boom and i am telling you as as a, a guy who has had the absolute pleasure uh and honor to see two children come into the world holy smokes like wow Mad respect. I mean, okay, Harry expressed it perhaps a little more eloquently, but wow, that is something. That is a ride. You, I mean, just 
the proudest moments of my life, and yet I did precisely nothing. Alan, Alan, please stop crying. (laughs) It does. It makes you kind of tear up a little bit. And so congratulations to Harry. I I appreciate that, uh, you know, that's a beautiful moment. King. Oh, King, I very not. Uh, how'd you get to be King? I guess is kind of my point. And I later on in the program, we're going to talk a little bit about monarchy. Because I think when this sort of thing happens, there are those of us, I know there's a, those of you out there in your car right now who are saying, why are we talking about this baby? It doesn't mean anything to me. And should we get rid of the monarchy? I've got some recent polling. We're going to do some polling. That sounds fun. But the other big news coming out of Queen's Park, again, involves arborists. And Getty Lee, what's it all about? There is unrest in the forest. There is trouble with the trees. Yeah, there's trouble with the trees with the provincial government. More again today. And coming up, the Minister of Forestry, John Yokobuski, will join me on this radio program to answer some questions. But to get some background about what we're talking about here... I mean, what what in is it that we are talking about in terms of this issue? I'm the trees. Here is Travis Derage, who is Queens Park Bureau Chief. No problem. All right, start chopping. What is all of this about, and what's the government's response? So essentially, you know, we we reported this a couple of weeks ago. The day after the budget, Force Ontario, which is an organization which promotes tree cover in Ontario and healthy forests in the province, they were told that this program that they run, the 50 million tree program, was being eliminated. It was a 4.7 million dollar program. The CEO of Force Ontario said he was completely caught off guard, and he told us at that point. When we interviewed him a couple weeks ago, he said nurseries are going to have to basically destroy these seedlings that they have because now there's no place to to plant them and there's no resources and people that were going to plant them. They now essentially have to be let go, and that is what we are seeing today. So we have to kill all the little trees. (laughs) This is So the Ford government is going full Game of Thrones here and just sending in the, you know, the swords to chop all these trees. Well, the, the government says, though, <laughs> and we, we talked to them, yeah, I guess I guess you go Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, yesterday's episode, by the way, was very interesting. Ah. Uh, but <laughs> No spoilers, no spoilers, no spoilers. Anyway, so the government says here, though, that industry does a good job of taking care of the forests in Ontario, and they have to replant trees. But, the, 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 you know, what the opposition says and what the critics say in Forest Ontario says is this was never about replacing trees that were cut down. It was increasing tree cover in Ontario, and it's going to have very detrimental effects to the environment when you now don't have that happening, especially in southern Ontario. You know, a lot of... But, Travis, uh, what kind of money are we talking about here? Let's just get down so to it's, the... It's $4.7 million. Four point, in savings. Uh, that's that's what the, the savings are. All right, Travis, um, I got I got to let you go. I got other things to chop down. Appreciate it. Go. That is Travis Deragi, Queens Park Bureau Chief. Uh, well, let's just check in with Farah Fawcett. Farah Fawcett from Cannonball Run. I'm into trees. Trees are very important. And coming up on the program, the minister, the minister in charge of this, the minister of forestry, John Yakubuski, who was in the house uh, standing up uh, defending this just a couple of moments ago, he will join us live on the line to talk about why it is he is such a tree killer why 
What is all the hubbub about trees in Ontario right now? And why is it that the Ford government finds itself under such pointed attack all because of shrubbery? What is happening? It's because the progressive conservatives have decided to cancel the 50 million tree program. Now, the government's tree program represents about 40% of annual revenue to nonprofit nurseries like this one in Kempville, just outside of Kempville, pardon me. This is called the Ferguson Tree Center. You may have seen this has popped up in the news over the weekend. And basically what they are saying is they are just going to have to get rid of all of their tiny trees because there's no one to take the trees. And all of this seems terribly cruel and mean. And to try and explain the government's perspective, I am happy to welcome to the program the Minister of Forestry for Ontario, John Yakubuski. John, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Are you a tree killer, sir? <laughs> well, I hope, I hope I'm not being referred to in that way because we're anything but. We're making sure that Trees do get planted in this province. In fact, the forest industry, as you know, plants an average of over 68 million trees every year. And Forest Ontario has indicated that, you know, they're going to continue this program, of which we're winding down. And uh, we've let, we let them know that we would not be continuing to fund this program, which uh, has planted about 27 million trees since 2008 and had a 50 million tree target uh, to be completed by 2020. So we've told them that, uh, look, we were left with a $15 billion deficit from the previous Liberal government, and we have to find ways of uh, fixing that problem that we were given, and this is one of the things that uh, that we've done. But we're continuing to support the planting of trees. We have the, you know, the, the MIFTIF, the, you know, managed, uh, managed uh, forest tax incentive program, and the conservation land tax incentive program. None of those ministers, none of that, none of those programs, minister, will replace the trees that were planned that are not are now not going to get planted. These little tiny well, trees that, to and to be to be you know to be fair, these little tiny trees are just there's no place for market. They're just going to have to be thrown out. Uh, absolutely not. They are going to get planted this year. We have been working with Forest Ontario, and I know that I know you've uh, have, you've had some comments from uh, Mr. Patchell in uh, the Kempville area. Uh, maybe you should call him back because I think uh, he has other information that he didn't have at the time that he did that uh, interview, my understanding. Uh, but the trees that are contracted for this year are going to be planted. That's uh, absolutely the case, and, and we've been working with Forest Ontario to ensure that. There will be, because of the funding change, fewer jobs. And your government seems to be just holding on to this pledge of that, well, there will be no job losses because of our changes in our, our spending. Can we just drop that and be honest with people? Forest Ontario, it's entirely up to them. Uh, they've already indicated that they expect to be able to find private sources of funding, you know, conservation clubs across the province. The forestry industry itself is... Uh, they've uh, indicated that they would be willing to sit down with Forest Ontario and talk about this. So, I mean, that, that's uh, we're going to stop giving taxpayers money directly to them. There's a wind-down program. But uh, there actually should be no uh, change in this. Uh, Forest Ontario uh, has opportunities now to find other sources in the private sector 
which quite frankly is the way that this should be done uh, in the first place. The private sector should the private sector should be funding this. Already the private sector uh, plants trees because they have to under a replacement guideline. They, these were trees beyond that. So you can't suggest that the two things are equal minister. They're, they're, they're planted on private property, Alan, and uh, I think the taxpayer out there understands that if there's going to be trees planted on, planted on private property, should it be the role of the taxpayer uh, to fund that? And uh, we've taken the position that given the fact that we were left with this massive deficit and debt by the previous government, that this is one of the programs that, under the circumstances, we've had to take a look at. And having said that, Forest Ontario have indicated that they expect they'll be able to find those sources of uh, of, uh, of uh, funding for this to continue this program. So at the end of the day, the taxpayer wins and the trees, and, and we're committed to the, ensuring that the trees that were contracted for this year will be planted. Uh, I think it's, it's a responsible decision that we've made. Minister, some of the attacks on your government uh, regarding this have been less about the actual trees themselves, but what they represent, and that is a commitment to do anything that may have uh, a stemming impact on the impact of climate change. So I will return to a question that the Premier has been asked, and I will ask you. Do you believe in climate change? Oh, absolutely. We, with, no one has ever indicated anything but in, from, from Do you believe it's man-made? Since it, well, since, it, since it's become a, uh, a topic... I mean, uh, 30 years ago, people didn't understand it. But uh, in my tenure here, certainly, we, we, all you have to do is look out the window and look at what we're dealing with with, uh, with flooding. Uh, I, as the Minister of Natural Resources, not only as the minister, but in my own riding, uh, we've dealt with significant flooding in, in two of the last three years, and we're still continuing to deal with this year's uh, flooding. So there's no question that climate is changing. And we have, in fact, a climate change plan that uh, uh, Minister Phillips, uh, I'm sure, would be more than happy to articulate all the details uh, on. I mean, where we, where we uh, drift away and, and differ from the federal government, for example, is where they take an issue like climate change and try to turn it into a tax grab so that they can fund the uh, uh, programs that they choose feel are politically advantageous to them. But, Minister, uh, I, I will just say to you that there are those who will say that the cancellation of this program mm-hmm. will lead to more erosion in flood zones, poorer air quality, warmer lakes because of lack of shade. All of these things are possible outcomes because of this funding change that you are making. You are simply hoping that the private sector is going to step up. Why should we put that hope in the private sector? We need these trees, do we not, to combat climate change? I, I am confident that the that the, well this year's trees will most definitely pl- be planted, but I am confident uh, that uh, the program will continue if Forest Ontario is committed to it. And as as for where the trees are planted, they're not. I mean, uh, listen, I know where pl- some of these trees are planted. They're not planted necessarily on floodplains. They're planted on farmland and areas uh, that are not necessarily anywhere near a floodplain. So I mean. It is a program that we have decided that based on the the fiscal mess that we were left by the previous government, that we are going to wind down. And and, and I am confident that uh, trees are still going to be planted in in this province uh, by the millions. And uh, if uh, if I have a piece of property that I want to plant trees on, I'm going to make sure that, that that is done. 
And I think a lot of people, a lot of responsible landowners uh, will continue to do just that. Minister, are you uh, familiar with the rock band Rush? Uh, Rush, I'm, Kitty I'm, Lee, I'm Alex. No, you're a country fella. All right. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. not a power rock fella. Okay, I'm going to have Getty Lee play us out, but uh, Minister John Yakubuski, the Minister of Forestry, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Alan. You have a great there day. There is unrest in the forest. There is trouble with the trees. Thank you, John Yakubuski. Please leave your passport at the front desk. Doesn't know Rush. I'm in the country. Thank you, Minister, for being on. <laughs> what? What? I thought that one would be a slam dunk, right? Yeah, minister, we- Minister, you in the rush? Well, who isn't, Alan? Who? Who? I mean, who? Maple syrup? Yes, I've heard of that. I want to talk real quick, if I can, about an article on Young Street that I read this weekend in the Globe and Mail. And just fascinating, this one's from Oliver Moore, and I want to bring it up real quick, because I don't know if you knew this, that Young Street right now, there's a consultation underway, very beginning of this process, trying to reimagine what to do with Young Street. And uh, if you've lived in the city, and if you've grown up in the area, Young Street has been a beacon. It's, I mean, it's been an ever-changing street for decades. And, you know, if you're of a certain age, you remember coming down to go to Sam the Record Man or, you know, go play in uh, the Funland Arcade. Maybe, you know, maybe you were going to get your hair cut at, uh, uh, at one of the, what was a Lord of, what was the Lord? Oh, it's almost, it's going to come back to me in a second. Or maybe you were going to the Zanzibar. Maybe that was your deal. But nevertheless, what are we going to do with Young Street? Because it's a canyon now. And should we think about it differently? And we close it off now a number of weekends over the year, and there is much consideration now about whether or not that should just be made permanent. Should we just say Young Street no longer has cars on it, or very limited, maybe two lanes, just two lanes? Or maybe we say, like in some cities, well, there's one lane at certain times, and that's only for delivery vehicles and for Ubers and so on and so forth. And get this when we talk numbers. According to the downtown Young Business Improvement Area, the population in that area is expected to jump 42% uh, from 2009 to 2022. The BIA's latest figures show 181,000 people are living within a 10-minute walk of that part of Young Street. I'm talking the southern portion of Young. If it was its own municipality, it would be among the 30 most populous in the country. It would be bigger than Sudbury, it would be bigger than Oshawa. All of these people just living there. Right now we have a 79-story called Aura, which is the tallest residential building in the country, but there are development proposals for more towers around Young and Girard that would make a forest of incredibly high towers, all of them, that sort of size. That 79-story building may no longer be the biggest one. So the question for all of us is going to be, what do we do with the grand old street? You know, back in the 70s, they would shut it down, and it was very popular, you know, shut it down to traffic, very popular, you know, pedestrian way. Uh, And then it kind of got a little scuzzy, didn't it? It got too scuzzy. And then there was, you know, the, the let's clean it up, let's clean this all up. And then that moved in. And then, of course, there was the gene machine. Oh, I miss the gene machine.
Don't you? Well, stay with us. Welcome back to the big radio program on a fabulous Monday. Big baby, big baby Monday is what it is. It's bouncing baby Monday, bouncing royal baby Monday. I am king. Oh, king, I very nice. Oh, yeah, very nice. How'd you get to be king? That is going to be the topic in our next segment, your opportunity to call in and just chew over this whole monarchy thing, because I think every time one of the Windsors drops a baby, you, I mean, not physically drops it on the ground, but you know what I mean, you have to ask yourself, oh, great. Well, now, why is that important to us? I mean, maybe, you know, from a, you know, celebrity point of view, like a Kardashian point of view, fine. You know, keeping up with the Windsors, that's fine. But we're talking about the head of state here. You know what I mean? Why, why should that be? I want to talk more about mental health. Of course, May is uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, and you're going to hear a lot from the Minister of Health over the course of this week. This government is uh, intent on letting you know what it is going to do about mental health, and there are different perspectives on what exactly the government is doing. For example, today, the minister highlighted an investment of $174 million this year. That is for community mental health and addiction services, mental health and justice services, supportive housing, acute mental health inpatient beds. The minister saying that her vision is for an integrated wraparound mental health service so people don't have to be in crisis to find timely access to services. Well, is that true? Is that actually what is happening in the Ontario budget? For a different perspective, I am joined by Dr. Heather Weir, who is a community psychologist and psychotherapist and chair of the Committee to Preserve Publicly Funded Physicians. Doctor, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Um, And I would like to say I do welcome the minister's effort to try and deliver increased access. So I think and it's very welcome to hear that access. However, unfortunately, at the same time, there is a proposal to restrict physician delivered or publicly funded psychotherapy from the health, um, the Ministry of Health. So it's it's a bit paradoxical um, about access and what's happening about that. Well, explain this to me, because obviously the government wants good news today. You read what they said. Do you find it to be true, accurate? I, it's hard to say. I've, I've just, you know, skimmed it myself. I'm sure it is accurate and true. I think there, they definitely want there to be increased access to mental health care, and that's what we all want. But at the same time, publicly funded longer-term psychotherapy is under threat because they want to restrict the number of sessions per year patients can come to us for psychotherapy. 
And, you know, we feel this is misguided. The intersection of the brain and the mind influence and complement each other and create a lot of complexity. And we have to deal with both. And it's not like trying to treat a sore toe. You need time to do it. I think you can diagnose a problem in a short period of time, but I don't think you can treat because mental health problems tend to be chronic, relapsing disorders, and so they need acute intervention, which can be lengthy, but then they also need longer-term treatment for maintenance and prevention of relapse. And I think access is important, but I think ongoing continuation of care is Certainly. also so, important. So to understand, you know, to understand your, your complaint, your essential complaint here, is that the government is restricting the number of hours and the number of sessions that can be used, especially for psychotherapy. But I I do want to read to you from the Department of Psychiatry, the Vice President of Education at Sunnybrook Health Sciences. This is Ari Zaretsky, and I'm sure you're familiar with him. Uh, He says, although cost savings from eliminating psychoanalysis in intensive long-care psychotherapy would be small in the scheme of the Ontario mental health budget, it is still important to choose wisely and emphasize value for money spent. And here is the quote. There is no evidence that four to five sessions a week for five to seven years is significantly superior than weekly psychotherapy. Your reaction to that? Well, what we're talking about here is not four and five times a week um, therapy. What we're talking about here is limiting patients to be you know have access once every two weeks, and so that's what is the proposal. So two weeks, you think, is far too few, uh, far too little in duration or or in numbers yes. of visits. That is the essential thing. Absolutely. I mean, we keep our chronically suicidal patients out of emergency rooms. If someone is suicidal, you can't just say, oh, well, just come every two weeks. Eating disorders are a very chronically ill and underserved population in Ontario. They require what is often life-saving intensive psychotherapy and psychiatric management. And to keep the medically stable out of hospital, you can't be restricted to just seeing them once every two weeks. Doctor, we're almost out of time, but I want to get to this because there are other sectors, not just healthcare, but other sectors of the public service where they are saying what the government is saying out loud in its press releases is not the truth of what's happening on the ground. Is that the same in mental health? Well, it remains to be seen. This announcement has just been announced. It's certainly not happening on the ground now, that's for sure. And this is a whole new program they're rolling out. Uh, Let's keep our fingers crossed that they will do that. Now, there's been cuts to mental health that's been going on for decades, decades. And it, um, this is why there's a limit in access. People didn't just get psychiatrically ill overnight. They've been reducing services to the mentally ill for decades. It's not this government. It's every government that's been in power because of a, a short-sightedness in understanding that Psychiatric disorder, mental health problems are often a lifetime disorder or illness that you have. It's expensive to treat. We will have to leave it there, but I think you make a strong point that this has been going on through successive governments. Dr. Heather Weir, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Bye. 
I'm king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. Yeah, very nice. How'd you get to be king? Well, if we go to some royal polling, let me just check, let me just fill you in on this little number, shall we? According to Global News, an Ipsos poll conducted exclusively for us found that 61% of Canadians believe that the Queen and the royal family should not have any role in Canadian society. Quote, the royals are simply celebrities and nothing more. Forum in 2017 said half of Canadians are opposed to abolishing the monarchy after the death of Queen Elizabeth, but half are in favor. In favor. Laura Hensley is a global national online journalist, and we are about to talk all things baby. You're all but you're all royal all the time, Laura. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes, I do love the royal family, and I'm pretty excited to be honest with you that this baby is finally here. Why? It's the baby's <laughs> seventh to the throne. It means like, what is the difference between this baby and the latest Kardashian? Well, to be honest, first of all, the Kardashians are royalty in their own right, but exactly. they're not, they're not royalty in their traditional sense. I but think what, there's no difference. Well, this baby is important, I think, because it's the first time that we are seeing an interracial baby in modern royal history. So Meghan Markle has already defied oh a lot of royal traditions, and I think that this child is going to, you know, oh have an important God. part in the monarchy. Are you are you serious? My eye, my eyeballs rolled right to the back of my head. Inter- who cares? Well, I think that it's important because we've seen that traditionally the royal family marries other people with prestigious they, titles. Sure, and they marry within mostly, the family, and right. next thing you know, they're all kind of you know it's, it's kind of Game of Thrones ish, if you know what well, I that's mean. A whole other you know, problem. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, but I if I look at these numbers here in terms of Canadians. National, here, I'll read another one. National Online Campus Research Poll. Uh, close to one half favored ending the monarchy and uh, the Queen's role as head of state. So we, as Canadians, the numbers say we, we don't care. People say they don't care, but you know, the top stories are always about the royals. And today, when the baby was born and it was announced, it was dominating all our conversations online, offline. People were really excited about it. So even though they might not want the Queen to have an active royal in Canadian government or politics or whatever, they still care about this baby. And I think that says something. Well, this is what I tweeted this morning. When the, and we're going to talk about the way the news came out in just a second. But when that first news popped up saying um, you know, the, that she's in labor... Mm-hmm. My quote, my my tweet was: Newsroom editors and producers, right now, a royal's in labor. Everybody, stop working on whatever you're doing and find me a baby angle. It's all baby, all baby. And that's what happened, swear to God, across every newsroom in the world this yes, morning. it did. In our newsroom as well, I got into work, and it was, you know, very soon we found out that Markle was in labor. It was half an hour to an hour later, we got confirmation that she had given birth. So the turnaround time was insane. Like right, right now, like Robert Fife is somewhere going. I got this SNC level. Oh, baby! Oh no, there's a baby. Put oh, put down that Trudeau thing. Put that down. Well, uh, here I want. I want to. Uh, okay, but tell me about this because this was kind of weird. Uh, we got the note that she's in labor. Yes. And then how much longer till he walked out and spoke to the press and said it's a boy? It was very quick. So I don't remember because the whole morning was a blur. But it was between thirty, forty. 
minutes, an hour. It was so quick. So obviously this indicates that the royal family had this really, really carefully curated. They knew what they were doing. The second the baby was going to be born, or maybe the baby was already born. Um, Are you suggesting to me... That she didn't just have a 20-minute labor? You know what? That'd be very impressive if she did, but I highly doubt that. Well, let's. Uh, it was impressive because here's what Harry had to say about it. It's been the most amazing experience I can ever um, possibly imagine. Um, how any woman does what they do is beyond comprehension. Huh? 20 yes. minutes. You know, he is already sort of, he, he came out looking like a very different person than we've seen. He's always been a bit more emotional. He's been more vocal about his struggles in the past. But when we saw Harry today, it seemed like he was completely changed. He's obsessed with this kid already, like we all are. Do you think, Laura, that we need to have this conversation about whether, you know, the, the monarchy remains part of this country at this point? I don't think at this point. I think that, you know... We're probably always going to have a relationship with the British royal family, and that's just a fact. And I think whether or not they play a more active role or we, you know, completely separate from them, we still have a fascination with them culturally and socially, and I think that's not going to go away that's even if we separate away. from that's them. That's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. What's at risk for them here in terms of the way they're managing all of this? Because, you know, through the engagement, all of the press, through the wedding and all of this, they have seemed to be masterful. Yes. At their press releases. Yes. Are you, do you sense anything, any danger in the future there for them? Any danger? I mean, I think Prince Harry's wild days are behind him. So unless he goes and has some wild weekends in Vegas, I think that... No, the, I'm thinking like mommy shaming between the, mommy the princes, shaming, maybe. I mean... The, the, the press has already been doing a great job at pinning the duchesses against each other. So they've already yes. been playing Meghan Markle against Kate Middleton, and that has caused divide. And the royal family has come out and said, hey, stop doing this. So I think that they've really carefully curated what they want the world to see. We see that on their social media channels. They moderate their comments religiously. We see it on Twitter. We see it in even their press releases. It's very carefully watched. So I don't think we're in jeopardy of something happening, but you know, who knows? But, yeah, but this is it. I mean, there would be so much, there's going to be so much judgment on her and the way she raises this baby. Yes, of course there is. I mean, the whole world's watching and everyone has an opinion and we see mommy shaming in all forms of celebrity, not just the royal family. So I think it's going to be a problem, but not unusual to anything else that they've already experienced. Laura, great having you on the program. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to everybody out there who spent your Monday afternoon, even just a snippet of it with us as we talked about monarchy we talked about the trees we had it all did we not it was a good it was a good hour and i tell you what you can do don't don't let it end don't really it would be sad join me on television at 5 30 tonight and then simulcast right here on this radio station beginning at six and then i'm back again tomorrow i'll see you then